When Jesus was on earth the first time, he went to the synagogue in Capernaum and there he began to teach in the synagogue. Now on a traditional synagogue uh, day, people would gather together and God's word would be opened and teaching would occur. And people gathered together in Capernaum regularly to listen. And they listened as God's word was taught week after week after week. But this week, when Jesus is present in their midst, something different happens. Instead of just some rabbi or some teacher of the law, it is God himself, Jesus, the one who wrote the word. Imagine that. Jesus showing up and teaching and explaining and speaking the words of life to those who are gathered. Well, while they're there, everyone is in rapt attention. You can feel the silence as everyone listens. The text tells us that as Jesus taught, they were mesmerized by the power and the authority of his words. You get the feeling that Jesus' words, it's like they were penetrating their heart, gripping these people's minds as they sat there. You could hear the proverbial pin drop in the room. Well, in the midst of Jesus' teaching, while everyone is in rapt attention, all of a sudden, without any warning, a man stands up and shouts out loud, I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You are the Holy One of God. You've come here to destroy us. What is going on? The people in the synagogue are overwhelmed. Where did this come from? Everybody is confused. This person has been in synagogue, it seems, week after week, year after year. Never has he been given an outburst like this before. No one knows what to do with this, but Jesus knows. And he sees and he understands what's going on. And so he looks directly at the man and he says, come out of him. And in the midst of everyone, the man falls to the ground limp and a demonic presence leaves. Now, the thing I find so fascinating about that story is that usually when we think about sort of demonic influence in someone's life, we think about people kind of thrashing around or speaking in a voice that's not their own or being out of control. And the thing that's so powerful and potent about that story is while it's true that you can have those sorts of experiences with the forces of darkness, that in that synagogue, that Jewish man was there week after week after week and nobody seemed to know he had a demon, including, it appears, himself. And so he was just simply there attending week after week. Maybe he was on the welcome committee. We don't know. But when Jesus shows up, this is the effect of his words. His words pierce through the deception. See, don't forget, Satan is the father of lies. And while he sometimes allows himself and his forces to manifest themselves, his preferred way is to keep everybody in the dark, for people not to even know that he's in the picture. But in the face of Jesus' words, even demons have to flee. 
And so Jesus speaks and he teaches and the words cut to the heart of this man. And the darkness comes to the surface and Jesus casts it out. Now it's possible that there's someone here this morning who without you even knowing it, perhaps brought some sort of demonic oppression or influence with you into the church. And maybe you've been doing it week after week, year after year, and everyone around you uh, thinks you're just fine, and you think yourself you're just fine. It has happened at Calvary Church before on a Sunday morning uh, where Satan sort of manifested his power in someone's life and none of us were expecting it to happen. If that's your case, I do pray that this morning Jesus' words would pierce your heart and your mind and bring light into the darkness, even if you don't know that the darkness is there. What is probably much more likely the case this morning is that all of us here today probably have in some ways a skewed vision of who we are. That we may look good on the outside. We may have attended Calvary Church for a few weeks or a few months or for a few years or a few decades. We may be engaged and involved in our school and our work and our small group and all sorts of things. And to outward appearance, the people sitting next to us this morning would say, oh no, he's fine, she's fine, everybody's good. But the power of Jesus' words are that they pierce through even our own self-deception. And they cut to the heart and the mind of who we really are. And for all of us here this morning, my prayer is that regardless of whether there's any demonic influence, all of us need to hear from Jesus truth to clear away whatever may be confusing us or deceiving us about who we really are and what our standing with him is. And so my prayer this morning is we have our final message from the seven churches that Jesus speaks to. In just a minute, we're going to look at that in the book of Revelation, chapter three. But I want to say up front, the great danger with the message we're about to hear is that each and every one of us are going to think it's for the person sitting next to us instead of thinking it's for us. That is the power that deception holds. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would simply open our hearts and be ready. That Jesus may have brought you here today because he has a message directly for you and for me. Something he wants to speak to our hearts. So with that in mind, would you take a Bible and open to the book of Revelation, chapter three. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we would be incredibly honored if you would take a Bible from the rack in front of you and just simply turn to page 993. 993, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And we're in Revelation chapter three. When you get there, 
you'll see these sections that say to the church, to the church. There are seven messages to seven churches. These were historical churches, but the purpose of these messages is Jesus wants to speak through these messages directly to us today. And we are looking at the last message to the last church. It's to the church in Laodicea. And I'll just tell you up front, this is a tough one. Dee read it for us. And so let's dive in and study it together. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, this is verse 14, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. With each of these messages, Jesus begins by introducing himself. And something of his introduction of himself gives us an understanding of what's going to come. Of what Jesus says about himself, the most significant thing is he calls himself the amen. Now, if you're on Christians for any time at all, you will hear this word amen. Sometimes you hear the word amen during a sermon. Amen? Often you'll hear it at the end of a prayer. Sometimes you'll hear the word amen just as a word of affirmation. Amen, sister. Sometimes you'll hear the word amen when the Bible is read because it shows up in the Bible. In fact, it's actually quite a common word in the Bible. It shows up in our English Bibles, I think maybe 29 or 30 times. It's actually in the Greek New Testament maybe 130 times. Some of you who are familiar with the older translations of the Bible may be familiar with the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you. That is the word amen. Amen, I say to you. And that is a thing that Jesus used quite regularly anytime he wanted to introduce a solemn pronouncement. See, the word amen means true, or I affirm that, or affirmation, agreement. The rest of us use amen at the end of something. During a sermon, at the end of a sentence, during a prayer, at the end of the prayer, after someone says an encouraging word, we say amen in response. Jesus uses the word amen at the beginning of what he's saying. Because he is truth. And when he says amen, I tell you, in the gospels this was a signal for a solemn pronouncement is about to follow. And Jesus is announcing, truly, truly, I tell you, I am the truth. Listen to what I am saying. Here in this message, Jesus doesn't just say, truly, truly. He says, I am the truth. And he introduces himself as the amen, because what follows is a solemn pronouncement. In fact, what we're about to hear is what I would consider to be the hardest and the harshest words that Jesus ever speaks to Christians. Normally in these messages we begin with commendation. There is no commendation for the church at Laodicea. There's hope, but
but no commendation. Instead, Jesus launches into a stinging rebuke. Again, the temptation is to think the rebuke is for the person sitting next to you. But we're asking the Lord, as Jesus speaks these words to our heart, that if these are meant for us, that his words would cut through the deception and the darkness into our hearts and into our minds and reveal to us the truth. The rebuke begins in verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. The historical city of Laodicea was situated in a very militarily advantageous position in its region. However, there was a problem. For the city of Laodicea, they had no natural water supply for how big their city became. Six miles to the east of Laodicea was the city of Heropolis. That city was built upon some natural hot springs, and that's where hot water came from. Ten miles to the north was the city of Colossae. The epistle of Colossians is written to the city of Colossae. Colossae had a cold water supply. They provided pure, cold drinking water. Now, the people of Laodicea were well aware of the problem when they tried to transport boiling hot water from Hierapolis six miles to Laodicea. What do you think happened to the water by the time it arrived? It was lukewarm. Likewise, when they tried by aqueduct to transport water from Colossae, nice, cool, crisp, refreshing water from Colossae, all the 10 miles to Laodicea, what do you think happened to the water when it arrived? It was lukewarm. And lukewarm water is useless. Hot water? Well, you can bathe in that. You can use it for medicine. Cold water, you can drink that and be refreshed. Lukewarm, tepid water is useless. And Jesus says, you are like lukewarm water and I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. Have you ever been super thirsty and got a glass of warm water and tried to drink it? There's no refreshment there. Now, when I was younger, I used to hear this passage taught a lot. It's a very popular passage. Now, the way I heard it taught was that what Jesus is talking about here is spirituality, hot spirituality, cold spirituality, and lukewarm spirituality. And the teaching went something like this. Jesus is saying, I would prefer that you either be hot spiritually, meaning on fire for Jesus, all excited about the faith, all fired up for the things of God, or Jesus wants you to be cold spiritually, meaning no interest off doing what the world wants you to do, engage in all sorts of practices, that the thing he hates most is lukewarm spirituality, neither hot spirituality or cold spirituality. And in addition, people sometimes used to teach the best thing to do if you are lukewarm, if you can't make yourself hot spiritually, 
You should engage in whatever sinful practices of the world so that your heart would become colder because it's easier to wake up a cold heart through some sort of shocking thing that Jesus might do. Let me tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Nowhere in scripture is it ever endorsed to choose sin or the ways of the world to do this kind of stuff. Jesus is not talking about spirituality. He is not saying you shouldn't be lukewarm spiritually. That's not the point. He's talking about water. Hot water is good. Cold water is good. Lukewarm water is useless. And Jesus is saying, some of you are like lukewarm water. And I'm about ready to spit you out of my mouth. Why is Jesus so frustrated with the church of Laodicea? And why might he be frustrated with Calvary Church and with you and I this morning? The rebuke continues in verses 17 and 18. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. The city of Laodicea was a rich city in the ancient world. So rich, in fact, that about 30 years before Revelation was written, there was a giant earthquake in the region. Many cities and buildings were destroyed and had to be rebuilt. Rome, which was the capital of the empire, offered financial help to try to rebuild cities. Laodicea wrote to Rome, we still have the writings, and said, we don't need your money. We got plenty of money of our own. We're going to rebuild. We don't want any intervention from anybody else. No one is ever going to say that Laodicea took money from anybody. We do not need your money. And they refused government help from Rome. And they did indeed rebuild their city. They were able to do so because the city of Laodicea was filled with rich benefactors. There were a lot of wealthy people in the city of Laodicea. And they all got together and they chipped in and they rebuilt the city. The reason there were so many rich people in Laodicea is it was a city of great commerce. Three industries in particular were heavily uh, represented in the city of Laodicea. You can hear them in Jesus' words. The first was banking. It is a center of finance in its region. The second, lots of people made a lot of money in Laodicea in the garment industry. For some reason, the sheep in that region, uh, the wool from the sheep produced incredibly famous soft black uh, garments, woolen garments. And those were sold everywhere at great prices. The third thing that Laodicea was known for, it was a medicinal city. It actually had a school of medicine there. Its most famous medicinal product that it sold, it's pharmaceutical, was eye salves, healing for your eyes. And so the people of Laodicea were rich. The city was rich. 
And the problem in the city of Laodicea had filtered into the church of Laodicea. And Jesus shows up and looks at the church and says, you've drunk deeply from the problem of the city. And the city's problem was arrogant self-sufficiency. We don't need anybody. We got all we need here. We got rich people. We got generous benefactors. We got hard workers. We got good industry. We got natural resources. We have what we need here. And the city of Laodicea was arrogantly self-sufficient. We don't need anyone. And Jesus says, the problem with your church is that you have become like the city in which you live. And the people in the church were also wealthy. And they didn't need anything. Now, this is not just a message to a historical city of Laodicea. It's a message to us this morning. And the question is, are we arrogant and self-sufficient? Is Jesus speaking to you today? Is he speaking to me? How do we know? What if we're like the man in the synagogue of, of Capernaum and we're deceived? How would you know this morning if he's talking directly to you? Ask yourself this question. What would happen to you personally today if God went on vacation? Like if just today, God's like, you know what? I got some work to do in the Middle East or I got some other things to do. I'm too busy to be here. What in your life would fall apart if God didn't show up? Your job? Would you be unable to do your homework this afternoon? Your health? Your struggle against the sins and temptations in your own life? Would you not be able to process the news you might read today without God's help? Now listen, I know the theological answer. <laughs> the theological answer is, well, yes, of course, everything would fall apart without God because he holds all things together. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, practically speaking, if the Lord didn't show up today, would you notice? Meaning, what did you get up this morning so desperate for God to do that if he didn't do it, you're like, I'm not going to make it to the end of the day. What is that thing in your life this past week that when it happened, you thought, I have got to go find some time with the Lord? What is that thing that you are so desperate for God to do in your life that you have been praying earnestly for him to show up and help you in the midst of this for the past few months or years? If there's nothing, that's a sign of self-sufficiency. We sure wouldn't want God to go on vacation, but if he does, I still got a checking account. I still got a car that works. I can handle my job. 
I'm pretty good at math. I can solve my problems. I got lots of friends. I'll call them for help. Let me ask the question another way. When was the last time you were angry with God? So we think anger is bad. But anger with God's not bad. The bad thing in the Bible is apathy. Anger shows that you care. Anger shows that you think that God could do something. When was the last time you said to God, God, you let me down. God, when are you going to show up? How long, oh Lord? Please, God, why won't you do something? When was the last time you got frustrated with God to say, God, I'm holding on to these promises and you don't seem to be doing anything? Because if you do that, that shows you're not self-sufficient. If you, if you don't get angry with God, you're like, okay, fine, you didn't show up, I'll take care of it. Okay, God, I prayed, but you didn't do anything, so now I'm going to do something. And if you can't remember the last time you were frustrated or distraught or the last time you held on to God for all you were worth and said, God, I will not let you go until you bless me, please, if you don't show up today, I won't make it. If you can't think of any of those, that might be a sign that you've fallen into self-sufficiency. What does self-sufficiency look like? It looks like America. It looks like how America's handling this pandemic. It's a plague from God. But what are we doing as a country? Well, tough luck. We've got this disease. Let's figure this out. We're going to have some quarantining. We've got some government rules. We've got lots of people working on vaccines. We've got to put together some CARES Act, and we've got to get money to people. I don't hear anybody in the country saying, I shouldn't say anybody, I don't hear most people in the country saying, we got to fall on our knees and beg God to help us. I don't see any press conferences where we're like, we got everybody together and we are going to beg God, please, if you don't help our country, we are going to be destroyed. We don't think that. We think, okay, well, this is not great. Let's marshal our scientific and intellectual and monetary resources and let's fix this problem. That's what self-sufficiency looks like. Self-sufficiency looks like the American political season. Neither of the presidential candidates, in my opinion, has correctly identified either the problem or the solution. The problem is sin and the solution is Jesus. And I don't hear anybody saying, look, we need to repent of who we are as a country and we need to stop acting the way that we're acting and we need to beg Jesus to be gracious to us. Do you know what the presidential candidates think the problem is? The other person. And do you know what they think the solution is? Them. Every single political ad that I've heard, the problem is the other person and the solution is them. I don't hear anybody saying the problem is me and the solution is Jesus. That's self-sufficiency. Second Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14 couldn't be any more clear. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or do what? Send a plague among my people. 
if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will, heal from, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. In the culture around us, there is a lot of finger pointing about wickedness and evil, but the fingers pointed in the wrong direction. We're willing to talk about all the wickedness that everybody else is doing. We're willing to say the problems in this country are because of this group or that group or they're not doing this or that person's not doing that. I don't hear a lot of people saying, I need to humble myself. I need to confess my sins. I need to acknowledge my wickedness. Regardless of what everybody else is doing, I got a big giant beam in my eye. I got to take that out before I look for the moat or the speck in your eye. That's self-sufficiency. And God says if we as a church, Calvary Church, and if you as an individual have drunk deeply of the culture in which we live, if we have taken on that arrogant American self-sufficiency, and now listen, it's American, it's also Chinese, and South Korean, and Canadian, and European, there are lots of countries in this world which are by definition self-sufficient, if we've taken that on in our church and in our personal lives, Jesus says, look, you may think you're doing fine. You guys may all be comforting yourselves, you and me together, and saying, look, we're doing good. Look, we got a nice church. We got lights on. We got chairs. We got plenty of money. We give money. The question is, if God didn't show up today, what would happen at this church? Would we notice Jesus says, please listen. You think you're doing great. But you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And we can comfort each, each other all the way to our destruction. And Jesus says, I see you. Nobody else may see you. You've put on a good front. You think you're dressed nicely. Look at us all. We're wearing very nice clothes. Jesus says, you're actually naked. And you don't know it. And we think, look at all the money we're able to give. And hey, we give to missions and we give to church stuff. He says, you think you're rich, but you are dirt poor in stuff that matters. He says, you think you see. You think you see what's going on in the world but you're blind. And what Jesus wants to do this morning is what only the words of Jesus can do is cut through the deception and the darkness and pierce into our hearts and minds until you feel him talking directly to your heart. And he's saying, look, you can keep pretending, but you know and I know. Well, what you probably would expect after such a hard pronouncement is Jesus to hand down the judgment. What you get instead is some of the most gracious, most kind, hopeful words in all of the Bible. Verse 19, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. 
So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, if anyone hears my voice this morning and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. One of my favorite paintings was painted in the 1800s by a man named Holman Hunt. The original of this painting hangs in Keble College, Oxford. And when I lived in that city, I used to stop by to see it probably every other week because I was so mesmerized by it. It was an incredibly popular painting in its day. In fact, preachers used to take the painting and preach from it in their churches because it was such a visually arresting picture of Revelation 3, verse 20. The painting is called Jesus. It's called actually just the light of the world. I have it here for you. I love this painting because the words of Revelation 3.20 are so powerful and it helps me visualize what Jesus is saying. A couple things about this. I have a copy of it in my office. We had to take a picture of the copy <laughs> to put up there. So it's not perhaps as uh, high definition perfect as you would like it to be, but hopefully you can see it and get the point. The first thing about this painting that is so powerful to me is that Jesus is incredibly feminine. In fact, this is one of the most feminine portrayals of Jesus uh, in the art world during its time. Why I think that's so powerful is because after Jesus tells us in all honesty and candor, you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, those I love, I discipline and rebuke. And that more feminine portrait of Jesus reminds us that the one who is speaking these words to us, even though they are hard words, is compassionate and gracious and loving and kind. The second thing about the painting is, is that in the painting there are three sources of light. The first is Jesus. That's the halo thing that is around his head. That's the artist's way of representing that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the source of all the light in the painting. The second light is the one he's carrying, the lantern. That's a representation that Jesus is bringing with him light. And that this is what he offers is not darkness and deception and death, but light. The third aspect of light, which is a little bit harder to see. Do you see all the way in the background, it looks like it's the dawn of a new day. That's what it's supposed to look like. When Jesus, the light of the world, brings light, a new day dawns in your life. There's also, and it might be harder for this group over here to see, but in the bottom right-hand corner, there's a little apple. It's a green apple. It's meant to symbolize sin. It's a reference to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve's original sin. 
You can't see the apple very well, but the more visual illustration of it is the weeds. So the weeds have grown up over the door. This is a reference to Jesus' parable of the sower where he says the weeds represent the deceitfulness of sin and wealth, which have grown up over the door. You probably can't see it from where you are, but on the painting, the hinges of the door are rusty. It's meant to symbolize that the door has not been opened in a while. And then the thing I find so moving about this painting is that door represents the human heart. Your heart and my heart. And what's so moving about it is if you look carefully at the painting, there's no handle on the outside. And the idea is, is that door can only be opened from the inside. That Jesus chooses not to force that door open. Instead, he simply stands there and he knocks. And beneath the painting, the original, is Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, there he is, knocking. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Take a good look at this painting because in just a minute I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. This painting, this passage, and especially the final verse of the final message to these seven churches, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, demands a response. And so we're going to spend the next few minutes responding. And what I'd like everybody to do, you can do this at home, you can do this here in the sanctuary, is bow your heads and close your eyes. Andy's up here with me. He's going to help me just play a little bit of music. And I would like you with your eyes closed and your heads bowed for us to think about the response to this message this morning. This is not between you and your neighbor. This is not paying attention to what anybody around you is doing. This is between you and Jesus. You may have walked in here this morning and you may look to outward appearances like everything's just fine. You may be fooling yourself, others around you, and you may have been doing this for a long, long time. But I want you to know today that Jesus is not fooled. It's out of love that he has spoken so directly and so powerfully. You think you're rich, but you're not. You think you're well-dressed, but you're not. You think you can see, but you can't. So what I'm going to ask you to do while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, and I'm not going to ask you to do anything more than this, but as a way of responding to Jesus, if you are ready to be earnest and to repent, whether it's been a few weeks or a few months or a few years or more, I'm simply going to ask you to stand where you are. 
The reason I'm asking you to do that is because you cannot open a door sitting down. And this is your sign to yourself and to Jesus that you want to let him in. Now I want you to understand Jesus is standing at that door and he's knocking. But please be very clear what he's offering. He's bringing with him light. Not the fires of hell or of judgment, but light. What he's offering is, you think you're rich, but I wanna make you truly rich. He's not offering poverty, he's offering true riches. He said, you walked in here dressed so nicely, I wanna give you clothes that are far more beautiful than you could ever make for yourself. He's standing there knocking. And what he has in his hands is mud to heal your eyes. The same Jesus who spat on the ground and took the mud and healed a man born blind, that's the Jesus that is knocking on the door of your heart today. You could not get a more compassionate and gracious offer than after this Jesus who knows you, who knows what you've done, who knows that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This same Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, saying, let me in. I want to have a meal with you. He's not come this morning to punch you in the face. He's not come this morning to judge you. He's not come this morning to condemn you. He says, I want to eat with you. Imagine that Jesus, kind, compassionate, loving. And in your heart, when you stand, what you are doing is you are symbolically opening that door. And you are saying, Jesus, come and eat with me. Can you imagine that Jesus seated at your table, breaking bread and giving it to you? Can you hear that Jesus saying to you, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is not a time for everybody to stand. We all wanna have lunch with Jesus, but it is a time for a number of us to stand. A number of us to say, we've let this culture determine how we behave. We've put a lot of confidence in our bank accounts. We put a lot of confidence in our ability to work, in the corporations that we've built, in our abilities in our schools. We put a lot of confidence in our government systems, in our democracy, in the officials that are in positions. We put a lot of confidence in our own abilities. 
And Jesus is saying to you this morning, let me be honest with you. You think you're rich and that you don't need anything. But you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And so here I am, standing at the door knocking. I'm offering to you true riches, beautiful, unblemished clothing, miraculous healing for your eyes. All you have to do is open the door. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us who are standing and for all of us. But I'm well aware that there is a temptation to stay seated when you should stand. So I will give you one more chance. Jesus is knocking. If today is your day to open that door, then stand and let him in. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.